As we know uh, from how we finished last week, the writer of Hebrews has been warning us not to repeat the mistakes of the past. He's been looking back at those wilderness wanderings, and he's warning us not to follow their example of disobedience. Because just like us, they had the good news preached to them, but they ignored it. Just like us, the good news of of God's truth was revealed to them, but they rejected it. And we have to be careful not to to make the same mistake by becoming distracted by all the circumstances around us, slowly drifting away into doubt and then falling into unbelief. So the author reminds us that, that in order to endure, we need to ask ourselves, do we genuinely believe that God's word is truth? Not only in what we read in the Bible, but also what we see in the life of Jesus Christ because he is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. So are we convinced that all that God said, all that Jesus proclaimed is true? Can we rely on the revealed truth of God? It says, not one of the promises which the Lord has made to Israel has failed. That they've all come to pass. In the New Testament, Paul has a similar thought when he writes to the Corinthians and he says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Jesus Christ. In other words, all the promises of God point to a Savior, and Jesus fulfilled them all. But the question is this. Has that truth penetrated your heart in a way that it has transformed your life? My heart and prayer for you this morning is that you would be open to the truth of God's word, that you would look closely at the life of Christ, and consider his work of grace. Because we need to understand, he's not demanding our obedience. What he's doing is he's he's simply inviting our trust. And my prayer for all of us, myself included this morning, is that we would accept the invitation, and we would trust and find rest in him. Let's pray together. Father, that is our prayer. We are all people who can relate to the one in the Bible who says, I believe, but but help me in my unbelief. Lord, we all need to grow in our trust, our dependence, our conviction, our reliance on your truth and your son. And so this morning, through your word, would you just spark within us a a deeper understanding and a stronger commitment. Just allow our feet to stand firm in the truth of your word. And and this is our prayer in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, if you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 4. We'll pick up where we left off last. I'd love for you to read along with me in verse 12. These are some Amazing verses that we're going to look at this morning, packed with truth. So let's try to soak it all in. Verse 12, it says, For the word of God 
is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. It's interesting, if you look at where we've been in Hebrews so far, out of all the verses that have been written, over one-third of them have been direct quotations from the Old Testament. And so the truth of this letter is not based on the author's opinion. It's based on the truth of God's Word, both in what is written, but also in what we see revealed in the life of Christ, because the author keeps pointing us back to our Savior. This is God's gracious revelation of truth, and we are invited to accept it. So now the author just almost takes a a slight pause, and he wants to give us an understanding of why we should stand firm, why we should hold on to the truth of God's Word. He begins by saying that God's Word is, is living, which means that it is an enduring truth It has no shelf life, no expiration date. This is a living God who speaks through a living word about a living Christ. This is not a dead letter for ancient readers. This is a living word that applies just as much to you and I today. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed. And is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for, for training in righteousness. If you think back to the creation account, and you think back to when God created Adam, how did he come alive? He breathed life into him. And in the same way, God breathes life into his word. And the work of his Holy Spirit is the one who makes that living word come alive within us. The author goes on and says that it is active. In other words, it does what it promises to do. We see this in, in Isaiah 55, 11, where God says, So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So when the writer says that God's word is active, he means that it's effective, that it brings conviction to the hearts of men, whether, whether they're 12 or 92. That's why the author describes it as a penetrating truth. He says that it's sharper than any two-edged sword which may be a little bit out of context for us, and so I want you to think of that same idea and think of it as a scalpel, okay? A tool used in the hands of a surgeon when he needs to work with delicate precision. God's word is like a scalpel. It it pierces, it it penetrates to the deepest parts of our being. He he describes it as separating the, the soul and the spirit, the 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 joints and the marrow. And we need to be careful here not to to press that 
too far because the author's intent is not to, to delineate the different parts of our being as, as body and, and soul and spirit. That's, that's not the point here. Because he goes on in the same verse and he talks about how he judges the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And then in other places, we know that it talks about how God's word is important for the renewing of our, of our mind. So this is not a commentary on the constitution of our humanity. This is a, a proclamation of the penetrating power, the truth of God's word. It's unhindered by any obstacles or any objections that we may have. It pierces to the innermost parts of our being, and it, it judges the, the thoughts and intentions of our heart. The word judging here is the idea of discerning or, or understanding. So God's word goes beyond just what's visible, what we can see. It, it looks at what, what the motive is behind our actions, the motive behind our words. I think probably all of us have, have said something out loud that we knew in our heart really wasn't true, right? Maybe somebody said something and asked if it was hurtful, and you said, no, it was fine, it's not a big deal, when in fact, it was incredibly painful, right? Or some of you may be at church this morning, just kind of, kind of going through the motions, right? You're, you're doing what everybody else is doing, but in your heart... You may not be convinced of these things to be true at all. Your motive is based more on what people think than on what you truly believe. But our, our words, our actions, they may fool other people, but what's true in our heart cannot be hidden from God. Verse 13 says that there is no creature hidden from his sight. So our true self is fully exposed before a holy God. It really doesn't matter what other people think because in the end, God has the only opinion that counts and nothing is hidden from his sight. But here's what's really important for us to understand because as we hear about the exposing, penetrating truth of God's word, it can sound a little intimidating kind of make us feel a little vulnerable, doesn't it? But we need to understand that that penetrating truth of God's word is intended to bring healing. It, it's like submitting to the care of a, of a skilled surgeon, trusting that his ultimate goal is to, to restore what has been broken, to, to heal what is diseased. Rejecting God's word is like refusing a life saving surgery because God's word is not just good advice. It is absolute authoritative truth of God, a truth to which we are all held accountable, not, not just in our actions, but as the scripture says, in, even in our motives behind them. And let's be honest, none of us, not a single person in this room, myself included, has pure motives which means we all need a life-saving surgery. We all need a Savior. Look at how he continues in verse 14. Therefore, based on this, since we have great, uh, such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast 
our confession. You see, the work of Christ is ultimately what brings, what brings healing to our sin-cursed soul. And Jesus is identified here as the great high priest. And since this is written to a Jewish audience, they, they understand the importance of this role because the high priest was the one who was ultimately responsible for maintaining the relationship between Israel and their God. And he primarily did this through one specific event during a specific day of the year. It was called the Day of Atonement. And on this day, the high priest took the, the blood of a sacrifice made on behalf of the people, and he passed through the veil, the veil that separated the, the holy place from the holy of holies, where he, only one person, one time a year, enters into that holy of holies in the very presence of God's glory. And having offered a sacrifice for his own sin first, he then offers a sacrifice as an atonement for all the people. And this same sacrifice would be offered year after year after year. And the reason it was a repeated sacrifice is because it was an imperfect sacrifice. It was imperfect because the high priest was imperfect. He was plagued by sin just like everyone else. It was imperfect because, as Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Animals are not the answer. Jesus is. The whole point of the Day of Atonement was intended to point to the cross of Jesus Christ because Jesus did what no one else could do. He became a substitutionary atonement for our sin, paying a ransom for our redemption, bearing the, the punishment for our sins so that we could find healing in his forgiveness and grace. And then we know, having, that, having offered that one sacrifice for sins, he died. He was buried, and on the third day, he rose again, and in time, he ascended, passing through the heavens, so unlike the high priest who passed through the veil, Jesus, our Savior, passes through the heavens, returning to the very presence of God from which he came. He's seated at God's right hand, interceding on behalf of all who believe. Knowing this, the writer of Hebrews urges his reader to hold fast to their confession. He wants them to let go of the, the imperfect ritual of the, of the Jewish religious obligations, or, or any religious obligations for that matter. Instead, he wants them to cling to the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, standing firm in the conviction that he is the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Only his sacrifice is sufficient to forgive our sins. 
look at how he continues in verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This is such good news, isn't it? Jesus is our mediator, and not someone who just stands in a distance who can't relate, but one who understands our weaknesses. Why? Because he took on our humanity. He emptied himself of all of his divine rights, submitting the, the reliance on his deity to the discretion of the Father. Why? So that he could sympathize with our weaknesses, that he could understand and, and help us understand our own humanity. That idea of sympathize means to, to suffer alongside someone else. We see this idea illustrated in music. For example, if you put two pianos in the same room and you go strike one note on one piano, that same note will resonate on the other piano. It's called sympathetic resonance. And in the very same way, this is telling us that the heart of Jesus resonates with our very own. So that when we strike a chord of suffering in our own life, he knows exactly what we're experiencing because he walked that road as well. He understands our sorrow. He understands our loss. He understands our suffering. He even understands, and this is an amazing reality, he even understands our temptations because it says that he too was tempted in all things just like us, yet without sin. But we could argue that we live in a different day and age and so temptations are, are different for us and, than they were for him back then, but, but really they all follow the same appetites. Those haven't changed from one generation to the next. John describes it in 1 John 2.16 as the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the sinful pride of life. And if you look throughout the Bible, you will see this reality. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. We know that the temptation of that apple was, was because it, it was good for food. That it was a delight to the eyes. That it was able to make someone wise apart from relying on God. It's the lust of the flesh. It's the lust of the eyes. It's the sinful pride of life. If, if you were to go and, and look at the temptation of Jesus in the desert, you'll see the very same pattern, and it also applies to you and I. What this is telling us is that Jesus understands the full range of temptations that you and I counter. But let me make this point. He understands them to a degree far greater than you and I will ever, ever know. And there's really a couple of reasons why that's true. The first one is that we have grown numb to sin over time. There are things that are happening around us that are abhorrent, but 
we don't even blink an eye. Just, just think about some of the, the TV shows and movies that we watch today. We, we tried to watch a PG-13 movie this week, and it's amazing what people think is appropriate for a 13-year-old. It was disgusting. But we've grown numb to sin over time. Jesus never grew numb. He remained sensitive to every distorted detail, every ugly reality of sin. To go back to uh, illustration with music, it's like a conductor who, who understands and hears every nuance of error in the symphony. Now, you and I could hear that same piece and not even blink an eye. But, but his ears are so attuned, he can hear every mistake, no matter how subtle it might be. And in the very same way, Jesus experienced every nuance of sin in every moment of his life. But he also endured every ounce of temptation beyond what we could ever imagine. Love the way C.S. Lewis explains this when he says, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would be like an hour later. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And here's the key, Christ. Because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation really means. Jesus understands our weakness more than we understand our own. He understands temptation beyond what we will ever experience. And how comforting to know that this is the one who is interceding for us. This is the one who understands. He can sympathize because he suffers right alongside us in the very same way. So this is not like someone healthy trying to understand a person who has cancer. This is someone who has endured the dreadful reality of that disease, including death itself. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Not the throne of judgment. Because that was taken care of at the cross. This is this is the throne of grace where weakness is welcomed. I heard somebody say this week that, that strength, our strength is God's rival. Our weakness is God's instrument. Because when we are weak, then he is strong. Our great high priest can relate to, to every ounce of our humanity. He never belittles when we give in. He's never disappointed when we fail. Instead, he invites us into his grace. And his forgiveness removes all shame and guilt. Why? Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, Jesus delights 
when we express our need for him. He's eager to, to strengthen and encourage us. His mercy looks at our past and he says, it's paid for. His grace looks at our present and says, I'm with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So let's think about this. If that is the one who is inviting our trust, the one who relates to every ounce of our weakness, every possible temptation, who who suffers right alongside of us, why wouldn't we trust him? Hasn't he shown that he is worthy? So let's not repeat the same mistakes of the past and, and follow that example of disobedience. God has graciously revealed his truth. So may we humbly accept it. Not only in what we see in God's word, but also what we see in the life of Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, let us, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. And I would encourage you to do that this week. Approach the throne of grace with confidence. Linger in God's presence. Rest in God's promises. And don't get in a hurry to leave. Let it marinate in your mind so that it can penetrate in your heart. And don't make it complicated. Take a passage and read until you Bump into something that causes you to pause and then stop and ask yourself why. What was significant? What was important? That's why I've mentioned before how much I enjoy our our Thursday morning Bible study because although we may read a chapter in a day, we all take the opportunity to, to highlight one thing that stood out most. We consider how it applies to our life and it has led to some very meaningful discussion. It's not complicated, but it is powerful. Because here's the reality. We've all got things to learn. We've all got places that we we still need to be healed. So go to the great physician. Submit to the surgery of God's word. Let him provide the healing that we so desperately need. But here's one of the ways where I think we, we struggle because I think sometimes we treat our heart a lot like we treat some of our physical ailments, right? When we have a, an ache or a pain and we want to try to figure out what it is, instead of going to the doctor, we go to the internet, right? And we look at our symptoms and find out all the things it could possibly be until we decide this is it. I know this is what I've got. And then we come up with our own treatment plan on how we're going to address that problem that we have diagnosed for ourselves And I don't know about you, it rarely ever works, right? But sometimes we can do the very same thing with our spiritual struggles. Why am I so angry? Why am I so jealous? Why am I so anxious? Why do I continue to struggle with the same sin pattern over and over again? Again, but instead of going to God's word, instead of going to the great physician, we go and consider other people's opinions. We do our own research 
relying on worldly wisdom, coming up with our own treatment plan to manage our sin, and it never works out. Doesn't it make sense that we would want to go to the one who created us and to understand how he might cure us? Doesn't it make sense that that we would approach the throne of grace with confidence to find mercy and grace in our time of need? He's worthy of our praise. He's deserving of our trust. So go with confidence. Because that's ultimately where all of us find healing and hope for our soul. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. And forgive us, Lord, for taking it for granted. For going outside of the promises of God to find healing and hope in our heart. Father, forgive us for, for trying to, to manage our own sin, to, to, to struggle in our own power instead of submitting and surrendering and finding rest and hope in you. Lord, thank you for your grace that you understand our weakness, that you're not disappointed in our failures, that you invite us to come before you knowing that we can have confidence in the promise of your forgiveness and love and mercy. Father, thank you that you look at our past and you say it's paid for. That you look at our present and you tell us I'm with you. May we find rest and hope in those promises. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please stand. Let's sing together. I want you to think about in your own life when you have things that you're trying to work through and you look at someone who, in your opinion, wouldn't understand. They just haven't experienced it. They can't relate. And so you're probably not going to go to that person, are you? Well, I hope and pray that this morning that you've been able to see that your Savior understands, that he can relate, and it's a safe place to open your heart and allow him to speak truth into your life. This past week, Jeff and I went to a conference, biblical counseling. It's really intended for pastors to help people as they're working through specific issues of anxiety and depression. It was really really helpful for me personally and for how to help others working through those same issues. One of the things that it talked about is that sometimes there are issues, causes that we can look at where we can say, this is something that I need to work through and we can identify it. And we can apply God's truth to that as it helps us chart a path towards recovery. But sometimes, and I know this has been true in my own experience, it comes out of nowhere has no cause, no explanation, no understanding. But I'm comforted in knowing that even though I can't explain it, that Jesus understands. And in my moments of greatest need, there are two things that have been most helpful. Rehearsing hymns and reciting God's word. Because that's where we ultimately find hope and healing when we don't have anywhere else to turn. So let me just encourage you to 
follow the Lord this week and go to the throne of grace knowing that he understands, that he relates, that he will meet you in your need and you will find grace and mercy in those moments. He loves you. I love you. I'm grateful to share life together. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this sweet family, for life shared together, for even as Jeff reminded us, for both men and women, we are made for community. We are built for relationships. We find strength in our relationship with you and the relationships that you've gifted us with through your people. So Lord, may we be faithful to be a safe place to someone else that allows them to open up our heart. And then may we together go before you and do the same, opening up our hearts before you, the ultimate safe place where we find healing and restoration for our souls. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your promises and your mercies that are new every morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.